Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. To support our clients through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, we launched this webinar series. Each week, we bring together two experts from the NHS to briefly present what is going on in their part of the health service. We have now converted this series into a podcast, so you can listen in as and when you like. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to the penultimate in our series of COVID update webinars. Um, we have brought in an extra special guest this week to give a, a, another different perspective on everything that's been going on and, and what might be lying ahead in the future. Um, so without further ado, I will introduce uh, Jim Easton, who is the Chief Executive of Care UK. Um, I'll allow Jim to, to give a little bit of background as to what Care UK do. Um, we're going to be talking about the role of the independent sector and uh, how that's all playing out. So um, over to you, Jim. Could you just very briefly, uh, for those that, that don't know, just give a one or two line summary of Care UK? Yeah, so just, yeah, so me, I've worked in healthcare all my life, uh, well, all my career anyway, uh, mainly in the NHS. I worked in the NHS for 23 years. I was a hospital CEO in the city of York where I still live. When the NHS was running a large regional chunks, I was a regional director for the south of England, and then I worked nationally as the national director for efficiency and in uh, quality for the NHS for a period, which is an extraordinary job. Um, and then I left six years ago um, to become the CEO of Care UK. Um, interesting healthcare company, main customer of the NHS. We do three things essentially. We run 10 surgical centres. So some folk might remember a thing called the ISTC, the Independent Sector Treatment Centre Programme, so standalone hospitals, not a typical private hospital model, more focused on the NHS, but we run 10 of those. Uh, we do 80,000, uh, a bit more than that now actually, surgical procedures a year, 90-odd uh, uh, percent for the NHS, 10% um, slightly growing number of private, with the largest, the only large-scale provider of healthcare in prisons, so we... Um, um, that's now 120 million pound um, business for us across the country, complex, interesting, difficult um, clinical work in a challenging environment. Um, and we're an interesting provider of primary care. We run the largest chunk of the country's 111 service um, and also the largest chunk, although smaller, of GP out of hours. Do a small amount of in-hours GP uh, work, but, we love, but we're creating a new innovative primary care model. Um, and so we've been right on the kind of front line of some of the recent change in doing those things. So it's an interesting mix to operate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you've obviously seen it from all angles, really, every every part of the, the NHS and how it's responded. So we've heard a lot in the last few weeks about how the NHS has responded to COVID. Could you just give us, a, a, explain a little bit for us how the private sector, the independent sector has played its part? Yeah, so if you take um, uh, so two of those chunks I mentioned, so if you take kind of 111 and our role in primary care, I mean, that was right on the front line in those scary early weeks when the numbers were going through the roof and the projections were terrifying and people were ringing, ringing me up to talk about supporting those Nightingale hospitals and the need for 4,000 beds in London prior to you. They were, they were scary few days. But, but actually the service that hit the biggest demand was 111, where we were having 1,000% 
peaks in demand at some points. And that service bent, in other words, people were waiting a long time to go through, but it didn't buckle. Uh, and it kind of reinforced, A, that the non-face-to-face -face channel was gonna be a key part. And actually that infrastructure, which has been debated by people about whether it's a good thing or not, became really essential and has led to a, a really strong view, actually, that that's one of the things that needs to be built on as a, as a, as a kind of underpinning piece of infrastructure for kind of potentially virtual channels. So that's been a really interesting, it was very tough operationally, has now settled down, it's been a really good lead indicator of what's happening epidemiologically in the country. We probably could see a week ahead of the COVID figures what was happening in terms of people feeling unwell and making decisions themselves about whether whether to, to run. So that was one set of things. And then as you know, on the surgical side, along with the, all the leaders of the um, main private hospital groups, I went to a meeting with the NHS leadership uh, group in the, in the first week of those figures where they said, we need all your capacity. Uh, and we all said yes. So for the last three months, we've effectively handed over all the private hospital capacity in the country to the NHS under a block contract. Uh, we initially thought it was all going to be massively utilised, but it turns out not. Like a number of these things, the peak has been less profound. And really, I think that's a because it wasn't at the top end of the epidemiological concerns. But also the thing that none of us predicted in COVID was the complete disappearance of all the other emergency patients. So mostly NHS hospitals have coped because the rest of the emergency workers disappeared. Now, that's largely not a good thing and may be leading to levels of non-COVID harm that might challenge the levels of COVID harm. You see some of that in the excess deaths numbers but we haven't been massively utilized. We are now ramping up that activity. Um, but the big question we'll come onto it is, how do we help, help now with what's gonna be a huge structural shortfall in elective capacity going forward? And relationships which weren't awful, but were often a little bit cool. And there were still some parts of the NHS that were ideologically still really uh, against working with colleagues. Um, a lot of that has now finally broken down. I mean, we had, we have some great relationships with the NHS and some great partnerships. But one of one of my centres, I won't name where it is, with a neighbouring hospital, always refused to work with us. And all that broke through. We were able to allow them to carry on doing their cancer surgery. And the chief executive of that hospital rang me to say how much those doctors were enjoying working with us. And and I won't I won't be as crude as I could be, but I said, is that the same people who wouldn't have crossed the road to put me out if I was on fire before? Um, and said, yeah, it's the same people. So, so it turns out that when you work together, you solve a lot of um, perceived obstacles. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a really good experience, although very uh, much a roller coaster ride in doing all sorts of new things. We had 50 new sets of instructions in a week for operating 111, for example, trying to change the pathway. So it's been very wow, okay. fast-paced, sometimes chaotic, um, and but but worked well. But it turns out that the next phase, the phase of getting out of the crisis, is more complicated for everybody, I think, than getting into it. So it's, it's going to require even more careful navigation, bring opportunities, but also some some significant challenges. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much. That's a brilliant summary there. I mean, in, in terms of that conversation with the NHS leaders and, and your, your fellow, your peers in the other groups, uh, how short was that conversation about whether you'd step up to, to fill the gap? Well, I think I think this is a, this this tells you everything you need to know about working. And I, you know, I worked for the NHS. I'm a huge, I love it, and I'm a huge fan of it. But I'm not an uncritical fan. I think the answer to your question tells you everything you need to know about the NHS. So the answer. So when Simon asked the question, "We need all your capacity. Can we have it?" It took five seconds for everybody to say yes. 
it took three months to turn that into a contract. So we, right. so we operated for three months, um, having switched all our business off without a firm contract in place. So, you know, one of the great challenges that fantastic colleagues in the NHS face is that the, the bureaucratic burden of trying to, you know, make things work inside the system of rules it, it is undoubtedly a drag on innovation. We got it done because of the national emergency, mm. but we now need to carry on through a period where there's less absolute crisis, but real need to solve problems. And we need to try and hold on to that can-do attitude together. And already in the discussions about how we go to the next phase, it's becoming more difficult to overcome those, you know, um, rule-based obstacles to kind of make progress. We'll do it. Um, and there's a great head of goodwill. Um, but I, I thought that was very, very indicative. I, re I remember one of one of my good chief executive colleagues in the NHS, who I've known for many years, talking um, about how her organisation had changed, a hospital organisation, and how quickly it moved to do things they'd never done before. And I said, oh, it's fantastic. And she said, yeah, but I don't know whether to be incredibly happy or incredibly sad about it. But, you know, <laughs> that when, we, when we really need to do it, we can do it. But when when we don't really need to do it, it can seem really hard to drive through change, even though everybody kind of knows it's essential. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we've, we've heard a lot about that from different corners in the NHS over the last few weeks and uh, a lot about the, the challenges they face. And you, you talked there about sort of the challenges in contracting being a, a big one. What other challenges or risks have you faced within the independent sector in, in uh, the last three or four months? Um, I think those would be very common for everybody. So, you know, striking this balance of providing an essential national service, take 111, you know, an essential piece of the national infrastructure, whilst keeping your own staff safe. Um, and what does that mean in a situation where you're literally learning every week, often, often every day, what's the new advice, uh, what's the new evidence on what is safe and what is not? Um, how should we go forward? staff reading themselves in newspapers do they need what ppe do they need are they safe are they not what's the additional risk for different groups of staff so that that balance has been really uh complex actually to work to work through um it's raised more complex hr issues in a, in a period than i've ever experienced so it's relatively easy to take a, a view on an issue. You know, what should we do about furloughing staff group X? It's relatively easy. Uh, the answer isn't particularly complex usually, but when you do it, it raises dozens of individual circumstances and comparables that are very complicated to, to deal with. So what should we do with our staff who are shielding or, sh or who have a relative who is shielding, but we regard as essential? And we've tried to take a very supportive attitude to our staff, A, because we want to be that kind of organization but we also want a long-term relationship with with our with our people that want them to continue to work for us um but but that that balance i think has been the hardest thing we're very lucky in that we've had secure cash flows so unlike many other businesses we haven't got to get into the you know really difficult situations of um what life becomes like when the business falls apart uh, mm. but it's uh, it's and and also i would say i think this is partly true of healthcare in general but certainly true of my organization and nothing to do with me that they're at their best when they've got lots of complicated change to get through quickly so 
actually people got on with you know making extraordinary changes to pathways really quickly and were very energized by it so although although there's a huge amount of complex work that's been done there it's not been difficult to do mm. and uh, 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 do you anticipate that sort of most of that change is going to last is there going to be a process of let's have a look back and see what worked and what didn't are you going to so be there's the question. so there's the question um so i don't think anybody knows so you know there's been a huge shift to remote consultation um we've been arguing that that was necessary for a long time because of the demographics the demographics mean that there aren't going to be enough there is more demand at the demand end and less supply of skilled people at the supply end and so you need to do a lot to use technology and um, to disintermediate location and time to allow asynchronous kind of consultation to be able to consult with people who aren't in your geography we've been trying to use our kind of large one-on-one platform to enable quite a lot of these technologies and processes people use to make that happen and found it as everybody does trying to introduce innovation to this system hard miles a load of that in some ways has evaporated overnight although i think you i think if you strip it back it may not be quite as deep as you think so nearly all gp consultation is being done by telephone and not not video particularly but by telephone um and it's been a success but um it's mostly gps doing their own consultations by telephone so it's not really a massive technological breakthrough um, and we need much more than that we need asynchronous consultation we need the use of the self-diagnosis on um, apps and so on to break through so i haven't seen all that yet with quite as much transformational change and secondly volumes have been very low so we're not it's not picking up the full volume of the of the service and it's not doing all the business in terms of referral so I think it's a positive sign in, in that some of the, so for example, most of our outpatient consultation is now and will in future now be remote. We only will see a patient where we absolutely have to lay our hands on them to do something. And we found all sorts of ways of giving people tests and diagnostics at home. And that meant that some of our doctors who just didn't like it have kind of got over that. And we, we won't go back um, to doing that. But across the service, I think I think one thing you need to remember is that the reason people like it is they like patient contact mm. you know and and it's a difficult job being a doc or a nurse or something you know you do quite a lot of difficult stuff with people and you know there's there's rewards around being paid reasonably well but the real rewards are, are a sense of kind of personal achievement and pride and you get a lot of that from the patient saying thanks thanks doctor that was that was great I really valued it and they really enjoy it. So I, I do think it's likely to have made a big step forward. I'm not sure whether it's been really tested against the full workload, and we'll learn that as we go yeah. forward. Um, and But I'm hopeful that we will have made a, a big incremental step, but we need to think really hard about replacing that lost element of personal contact that a lot of those people really value in terms of what it means for them to do their job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of you just mentioned there about sort of increasing the diagnostics and things that you can do remotely. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the, I suppose, the relative change curve in, in your world as opposed to the NHS in terms of how easy it is to implement new things or do things differently? Well, first of all, I think I've seen, as per my conversation with my chief executive colleague, I've seen some really impressive rapid change in the NHS over recent weeks and months. One, I occasionally get invited to kind of do um, talks to groups of people in the NHS about my kind of parallel experiences. 
um, as a huge fan, but not an uncritical one of the of the of the NHS. I, I think it's a vital cornerstone of what it means to have our society. But that doesn't mean we should be. I, I, it's been great that it's been so praised, but I think we need to be very careful about making it even more of a religion because I think we need we need to be able to criticise the thing we love to in order to take it take it forward without that being a crime punishable by burning, which occasionally it does uh, it does feel like. Um, but I've seen some amazingly rapid change. But I think one of the problems with the NHS is it's always great in a crisis. You know, whenever there's something goes horribly wrong, I never worry about how the NHS will respond. It'll always be magnificent. The real question is when it gets more into the chronic phase of change, can it can it sustain the same energy for for difficulty? And I think again, one of the things I would say about our organisation and most private organisations is it is better at that. And the reason it's better at that is nothing magical. It's because we we have an existential threat, which is that if we don't innovate and change and um, continue to please our customers, they'll have us out, and we'll have we'll have no business and no employment. Whereas for reasons that may be good, the NHS doesn't face that existential threat. That's probably a good thing in terms of stability, but it doesn't drive that that kind of need for change without external stimulus. So I think a lot of really great leaders in the NHS are thinking how they sustain this energy for change and not allow it to retract back into, um, uh, into traditional boundaries. So there is an opportunity, but it needs to be realised together because, because COVID isn't the real crisis. The real crisis is the slow burn demographic crisis of, you know, the, the, num the, the people numbers over the next 10 and 20 years, which mean that if we love and value a universal healthcare system in our country, and I will fight on the same barricades as those people who think I have no place in 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 this, system, you know, to fight and preserve a universal healthcare system. I think it's free at the point of delivery. I think it's terrifically important. Um, but but unless we change the model, and COVID has illustrated some of the ways we might change it, then we won't be able to do it. Not because governments won't fund it, but because we won't have the people to uh, yeah, yeah. to do it. So it's it's given us a really good boost, but the next year is a really telling time in terms of can we harness it. But there are real problems to face. So the big, the big ongoing challenge of the NHS, and for me too actually, is that as long as we're in a world without a vaccine and without a really efficacious treatment, then running COVID compliant pathways through healthcare organisations massively reduces capacity. Mm. People are talking about 30 or 40% reduction in available capacity on a system that already ran hot. I, I was going through some of the granular detail of that for my own services yesterday. So just to just to illustrate right at the granular level where this loss of capacity comes from. So in my operating theatres, the guidance suggests that in order to maintain safety, in addition to a whole range of other things we do about cleaning and so on, we have to do five air changes in theatre, completely change the air in the theatre. Uh, between each patient um, and in our in our best theatres our laminar flow theatres that takes 12 minutes more typically 15 minutes but in, in our endoscopy theatres which uh, uh, rooms really rather than theatres and, and endoscopy is one of the most aerosolizing procedures it's got one of the highest risk it might take me half an hour to achieve those air changes so for a for a 10 minute procedure half an hour between patients so these are these are staggering reductions in um available capacity and we, we we're trying to look at all and by the way anyone on the call who's got innovations that target those things now is the now is the moment 
because that's a real business case for things that might have been uh, uh, so for example it, it now looks it's really interesting for me as though the business case to put new uh, air change plant into my theatres which ran on lower air changes might all of a sudden be unanswerable um, to make that, make that change so, so we're going to need massive innovation and med tech and pharma and all those folks who can help in those individual parts of the pathway um, to unlock those elements that stuff now has a much harder business case, sorry, a better business case, harder edged one than so, it did. So what are the real drivers there? So, I mean, obviously, within looking at a constrained capacity and at least, well, a, a lagging demand, uh, sorry, a, a lagging flow, probably the same demand, but just, you know, pushed down the line. But what are the drivers for you in innovation? Is it about trying to stop those? patients ever turning up? Is it getting them th through quicker when they are there? Is it about having greater efficiency in process or is it a bit of a... Yes. So yes to all that. So if you run, if you run the numbers, um, and I've run the numbers on um, secondary care, it's pretty scary. That's why you saw those stories of 10 million people on waiting lists. We've already lost three months of surgery. That's 700,000 patients a month. The figures are slightly helped by the fact there have been very few referrals. We presume most of those people are still sitting at home with their knees deteriorating and their hips deteriorating and their hernias getting very uncomfortable. So we think most of that will reappear at some point. So you could get to 10, 10 million people. That's not my numbers. Those were numbers coming out of the NHS. I think they might be a little high, but they're not off the scale high. Uh, and from an NHS that was already struggling to maintain parity so you know we need to do our bit the private sector can't do all of the elective surgery even running full cat it's only going to it's only going to do 15 or 20 percent um of that of that contribution so it's got to be a supplement to what the nhs is doing so i think we're going to need innovation at every point along that along that pathway to uh, alternatives to surgery um, but when the surgery is needed to just re so, so we were very proud of the fact that we could run a successful business off nhs tariff which, which meant that we had to be really efficient. And we really worried about five minute transitions between patients. Because if we got that right, we could get an extra patient on the list, do that well and safely, and have optimized our theater time. So we, we've always been red hot. So when we see a number like 15 minutes between patients in our best theaters, that's terrifying to us. So anything we can do, we're scouring the world at the moment for incremental innovations we can make right across the pathway that give us back five minutes, two minutes, you know that in order to keep throughput through for us for our business but also for the nhs just have baseline capacity to be able to um, continue to make some kind of reasonable offer to the population mm. and you you touched i mean obviously huge amounts you can do internally you touched on kind of the assumption that there might be in some uh, some arenas that the private sector will pick up a bit of the overflow or as much of the overflow as they can do from the nhs what role do you see the independent sector playing? Will it be doing the same things but more of them or will do you, do you see a sort of an expanded set of services being offered in, in the private sector? <laughs> I did warn Tom that I was uh, I had my own dog and I was dog sitting it's all just gone off I apologize to all this uh, my wife will try and calm them down. <laughs> um, we can see so so uh well, this is what's being talked through now is the honest answer so we're trying to wrestle together with good colleagues in the NHS about what what should we do that helps most um, 
and there's a really complex balance to be struck between I mean, I mean I think the simple game plan is that the NHS in its capacity probably is going to com concentrate on those patients who need you know more extended and sophisticated care um, so I you know I'm very good at what I do but I don't do a um, complex cardiac surgery and I don't do cancer surgery although we've done some cancer surgery work or we provided facilities for some cancer surgery through this period for people um, uh, but where you need an HTU and ITU available and where you need all the complex modalities the NHS should use its precious capacity to focus on that and we should keep the elective path running so that just doesn't become uncontrollable um, but it's not going to be as simple as that firstly the NHS is going to make some important contribution to the elective pathway and you get some interesting drivers here. We've got young doctors to train, you know, and, and, and they need work in their logbooks and we need to, together to be working on that. You've got doctors who need to keep their, uh, surgeons who need to keep their hands um, operating. So they need to be doing some of the surgery, although they'll, although they'll get all, they will get rusty. And on the other side, it may be that we need to work providing facilities for NHS colleagues to do some of the more complex work that they previously did in their own sites. So we, as we work through that in detail, it's clear that the mix is going to change. And a lot of this is dependent on what does the NHS have locally? You know, some people have great modern sites that, with lots of single rooms that they can maintain a high throughput. Others were already working in outdated, clapped out estate that was struggling with the, the load before and won't, won't um, pick up much addition. So it's a very, it's not, you know, you might provide a national umbrella in terms of some kind of contractual framework, but you actually need to work it through locally. And I would say that one of the mo one of the best changes that's happened is that the dialogue that we're having locally with colleagues around sitting around a virtual table and figuring out what we've got to put on the table together and what we can make use of has just been um, really open and straightforward. Um, and uh, I hope that translates into good agreements. The other thing is that we know we won't get it right. This is still evolving. We don't know whether there will be a second wave. We don't know what will happen when what, at what speed the emergency patients who are missing will come back. So we've got to have quite a flexible response to this um, uh, uh, as we go forward. And I want to run my own business at some point. You know, I want to get back to, to meeting the promise that we made to those patients who came to us and treat them. So those are those are tricky things to balance. Um, so the dialogue has its you know challenging moments nationally mm. and locally, but the intent is really strong together to try and find a solution. Yeah. Are there are there any things that you're being asked to do either nationally or locally that are not core business for you or that are slightly different or that are challenges for you to to think about? Um, well, the answer is probably no, but that's because we have a bit of an attitude that the core business is what the customer asks us to do, really. So you know, um, you know, we, we we're very interested in trying to understand their needs. So if you flip if you flip back to uh, 111 it's clear that people want to consider doing a whole load more things with 111 so the uh, talk before you walk in other words not not accessing a, a load of a load of nhs services unless you've gone through that kind of triage triage platform is really gaining pace so you know people were talking very nervously three months ago about the idea of you couldn't go to an a e department unless you'd either been taken by an ambulance or spoken to 111 first who directed you know that was a very nervy conversation that's now a mainstream conversation people talking about um that that, that we we want to bake that in so that's great we're strongly supportive but getting it right and getting the right staffing into that service and building it up and having the pathways right 
is a bit more than just saying it. So there's a lot of detail to be to be done. We 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 would like to see even more happening to stretchers on using all those technologies that are out there, the apps and the wearable devices, and linking those to that platform. And on that, we still find it quite hard to penetrate what the NHS wants to do. It's clear that it's got to look after over the medium and long term a lot more people at home. It's clear that just pushing people into nursing homes has a massive downside without some support. That's been one of the most difficult stories. Mm. It's clear that there aren't enough trained staff in communities to pick up that workload. So you've got to use technology to disintermediate. You've got to integrate that into the local system. Um, and we are waiting, hopefully, for that to become clearer about whether it's nationally or in local systems, how people want to take that forward. And it would be more than just a bit of messing about on the periphery, but to really drive for a significantly integrated technological response. Um, and the reason we're interested is not because we're a technology company, we're not, but we think the 111 infrastructure, the existence of a 24-7 call centre response that can do actual things with people to push them into the system, creates a, a back end for that kind of intervention that could be very powerful in unlocking it. But I think the NHS, as, as you're seeing a bit with test and trace, it's, it, it, its corporate ability to transact technological solutions remains one of its weakest points. And I speak as someone who was absolutely guilty of that in my, in my time. You know, as an NHS CEO for 10 years, I never had a day's education on the role of technology. I can't imagine, I can't imagine any other industry where people get to be CEOs without spending a lot of their time trying to learn and find out about what's happening on, on, on technology. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's uh, quite telling, really, isn't it, of, uh, of how things have developed over the years. Um, just in terms of your just comments there about 111, um, it seems that you're suggesting that 111 might be beefed up, bulked up and doing more to keep patients away from care settings one way or another. Do you see that as being a, a sort of a, a long-term trajectory where funding might come from other areas and beefing up those kinds of services to be more comprehensive and doing things um, almost at the expense of other other parts of the system? Well, so two two questions in there really. So one 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 is it's not me saying it. Um, this is this is the NHS nationally, um, local commissioners, local systems. STP areas really seeing that they've been able to move a lot with these other these other channels and wanting to do more of that. Um, mm. So it's coming much more mainstream, I think, from many many colleagues in the NHS. Um, I don't think that's reached a set of conclusions yet, and and some of those conclusions are sensitive and complex. But but I think there's a strong a strong push to do more with that infrastructure. Uh, your question about um, how is it funded? Well, that's the generic NHS question, isn't it? So it's, it's, it's clearly more expensive to run a call centre with three times as many clinical staff in as you have now. Um, and so that, that, that's in the normal run of things about where, where a financial decision is being made. But what I would say is that in some ways the financial conversation is a distraction. The real issue is the people issue which is okay. we, we, have, we'll, we have and will continue to have a restricted supply of clinical professionals um, on an ongoing basis. Um, and we have to make really intelligent decisions as a system about where are they placed. Um, so, you know, at its bad side, occasionally you see 
for example, competition, local competition for GP resource on the ground between GP out of hours, 111, I run both of those. Sometimes I'm in competition with myself. Um, GPs at the front end of A&E, GPs doing extended services in their practices. And it, it's run as a bit of a just sort of a, a free-for-all economy about who's going to pay the highest rate to attract a GP. I think we need a more thoughtful approach to where do we where do we want our colleagues? Because of course one of the reasons that 111 was created was that there weren't enough people to expand NHS Direct, which was a nurse-led model. Mm. And so you 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 blended clinicians with non-clinicians who didn't need training because you could get more of them. Um, and it may be at least in the short term that the NHS is going to find it easier to recruit non-professionals and get mm. people into the pathway because sadly I think the economic impact of COVID is yet to be felt. Um, it's businesses or, or, or people's people's view of how bad the economic impact is rather cushioned by furloughing and I think as that unravels we'll see it difficult uh, how difficult that is but the upside of that is there may be an opportunity to pull pull a wide range of people into the into the healthcare and, and wider care professions and we should grasp that with both hands because that's a much more difficult issue than the money issue. Yeah okay yeah very sound words. Um, so we're, we're just about out of time but I was just wondering Jim if you could uh, in light of everything you said just give us a couple of sentences on what you think the future looks like for independent providers of healthcare in this, in this country or these countries. So so, so, so as I say, you need to understand that I'm someone who is a passionate believer in a universal free at the point of healthcare system. I'm not one of those people who extends that to say everything must be publicly run. I think there are huge advantages in big chunks of the system being publicly run. It brings stability uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I worked in it for many of my years and I see all the advantages, but it does have some downsides. It generally doesn't innovate that quickly. Um, it, it finds it hard to respond to um, some change at the pace required. And so I think a blend of a, of, a, of a bit of independent sector capacity helping to top that up, provide some relief, be flexible, uh, invest in some capital to help the NHS use its scarce capital resources really wisely. As long as its values are strong, it's not profiteering, um, it, it wants to work as a strong partner, it has a high regard for quality, then I think I think offering that kind of complementary, smallish scale kind of whatever you think that is, 15%, I don't know what you think the number is of um, what the NHS is doing, I think that can be a good a good blend and a good mix. And what we want to do is continue to be a partner for that. It looks as though just the structural shortfalls in capacity mean that in a couple of areas like elective care, the private sector is going to have to really uh, roll its sleeves up and help colleagues in the NHS through that. And that may create some really interesting new opportunities to do clever, clever things um, uh, together. I certainly think it's not a time for ideology to get in the way on either side to get in the way of thinking together how to work um, and the early signs are, are good and I think what everybody wants to do is there are there are for all the awfulness of Covid and there has been some you know the, the, the toll of death and distress is awful don't want to minimize that for a second there are many many silver linings in this cloud and um, it, it, you know it, history won't forgive us if we don't take advantage of those yeah very strong words to, to end on, I think, and uh, hopefully a sentiment we could all agree with. Um, I could keep on talking with you all, all afternoon, Jim, but I'm afraid we've got to go. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you, everyone at home, for joining us on, on this penultimate webcast. We're back next week for our final episode, looking at what the future holds for the NHS. 
Uh, we're back at two o'clock next week, back to our normal time. Uh, another special guest for him, we're, we're still awaiting clearance, so I can't, can't reveal who it is, but we will uh, uh, yeah, have someone very, very good to speak with us next week. So please join us then, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.